You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about the business and culture of book selling in the 21st century. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Before we begin, if you like what we're doing, there are a couple of ways to help us out. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also support the show via Patreon. Finally, I'm excited to announce a cool partnership with Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first audiobook company to directly support independent bookstores. They make it easy for you to listen to more audiobooks at a great price, all while knowing you're helping your community thrive. Learn how to get your first month for 99 cents at bookstories.show. This week's conversation takes us to Brooklyn, home of Powerhouse Arena. I spoke with Suzanne Koenig, who, along with her husband, Daniel Power, run two stores and a publishing company, Powerhouse Books, that specializes in photo books. Powerhouse Arena is a bookstore, gallery, and event space wrapped into one. We discuss many things, including the challenges of opening multiple locations and replicating prior success. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Here's our conversation. Let's start at the beginning. In your own words, what's the origin story? What's the Powerhouse origin story and in your involvement with it? It's kind, of in- it's kind of interesting, I think, because um, we come primarily from the publishing side. So um, my husband is the publisher of Powerhouse Books. Oh, he founded that in the early 90s. 95 is what I found. Exactly, perfect. Yeah. And he previously had founded a DIP, Distributed Art Book Publishers, and from there he started his own publishing company. So he had a publishing company. I myself was involved in publishing in France. So I'm originally from Germany, worked in Art World, Sotheby's, and you know, a couple of museums. Um, moved to France and found myself working for art book publishers there. And through you know the, the, the different conventions in Frankfurt Book Fair, London Book Fair, I met Daniel, and there was an opportunity for me to open up a New York office. And I had my daughter, and I moved to New York, and I started uh, working for a French publisher in New York. And, you know, eventually we got married and had a kid. And I joined um, a powerhouse. And about two years before we moved to Dumbo, which was, I think, 1994, 1993, we started a little showroom um, that was part of the publishing company, but was just really for powerhouse books and the little gallery space where we launched our own books. And we really liked the public space, and it was kind of interesting. And when that uh, space in Manhattan was up for, the lease was up, we were looking for another venue. And ended up in Dumbo, which was at that point not so developed yet. Right. It was just the beginning of Dumbo. It's still a lot of art spaces, still a lot of artists, still a lot of empty warehouses. It was just really the beginning. And we were one of the first kind of cultural entities there. We see this amazing, beautiful, big, like, warehouse space. I always call it an industrial cathedral with 10,000 square foot, uh, 24 feet ceiling. And it was amazing. And the landlord wanted to chop it up and give us a little parcel, you know. You want to do a little bookstore? And my husband said, oh, no, 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 we want everything. <laughs> and uh, But we didn't really know what we were doing. So we came about it very kind of a little bit organically, you know, step by step. We had the publishing company on the on the mezzanine level and then we had this really big open space. You know, eventually I just started buying a couple of my books um, and adding more and more to it. So we kind of grew into what we eventually became. It took us probably two, three years to really build up 
uh, you know, substantial merchandise and books and, and starting the events that was much later, the book events. So we kind of came from the publishing side into retail without really having a concept, which we thought made the space very attractive and very accessible because it wasn't so thought through and so built out, you know, it wasn't, it didn't have a lot of design elements or it wasn't, it's a very big space. And sometimes when they're over-designed in, in like a gallery space, they become very intimidating for people to go in, right? They feel it's very precious or something. So yeah. our space was really, a lot of furniture came actually from the street. People, you know, a lot of, fancy apartments and when they're renovated they're tossed out their wooden table or their shelf and we just grabbed a lot of stuff from the street like and we build a couple of things but most of it was really kind of thrown together a little bit and I think it made it look more accessible and just not so fancy not so precious and I think that was what you know, make that appeal for the stick space without being too overly designed. So that's kind of that's kind of the story how it all started. So from publishing company into uh, opening up that retail space. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like one of the concepts, one of the themes of the series that we're doing is that we're exploring the sustainability of bookstores in the 21st century and how they can work and what components beyond actual book selling have to exist to make stores successful. And the thing that is really cool about your space is that it's it's a gallery, it's a bookstore, it's an event space, and you use it in all these sort of configurable ways. Was there an existing store or concept that inspired you guys? You said it, that you just kind of didn't really know what you were doing, but did you have any kind of a blueprint or? <laughs> I think we really kind of uh, figured it out as we went along. Because the space was such an unusual space, it became really attractive for product launches. So certain companies, uh, you know, corporate companies approached us. And, you know, it had to have that angle of fitness, urban culture type of, but for example, Spike Lee did a collaboration with uh, a vodka company. And so they launched that Brooklyn vodka bottle or whatever with Spike Lee as, you know, the spearheaded. Uh, and, and so, you know, so they rented the space and they transformed it. And then we had, we had weddings. People wanted to get married in a bookstore, you know, be it an editor or publisher or people who actually met in our bookstore wanted to get married in the bookstore because that's where they met. Um, so we had a couple of these kind of financially interesting rentals that helped us subsidize the rent. That was one thing we did, you know, to kind of help the bookstore model, you know, be able to to do that. Obviously, events, uh, a huge part of uh, bookstores, for all the bookstores in Brooklyn, the events are bringing in probably 30% of your income. And everybody in Brooklyn, and, you know, we are very fortunate to have a lot of authors who live in Brooklyn or, or in New York. And there's a lot of access to a lot of, you know, people and also editors who can moderate it. You know, and it's, it's a, we have a big pool of resources there. So events are about 30% of, of that. And what's interesting about an event is, so not only do you sell the event copies, but because you're bringing people to the store, people are already there. If you serve a little bit of wine, you know, it, it becomes a whole evening out. Sure. People are browsing around. They're buying a lot of other things. And then you have this kind of snowball effect you know, people come into your store, had a good experience, a good event, they're telling their friend, oh, I went to Powerhouse for this party. You know, so you're opening yourself up to new types of people who would never come to your store. Right. Purchasing books just on a day-to-day basis, but they come for an event. And then, you know, they talk about it or they come back because they had a good night. So that's 
an additional benefit of having events, I think. I read somewhere that you you don't charge covers or fees to, to attend events. Is that is that true? And, and yes. if so, how do you sustain that model? Um, is it kind of a little bit of what you said, like picking up that residual, those residual sales, or is there something else going on? Yeah, that's what it is primarily. Um, we do have a few events, and that is often in collaboration with the publisher who said we want to make it a ticket book bundle. You probably heard that. Yeah. So you pay $25 or $30 and, and you get the book with it. Uh, and that's often what they want to do for big name authors just to make sure that the sales are there and people don't show up with their old copies, get them signed and just want to see the author but also purchase something. So that, But that's what pretty much a lot of the bookstores are doing when it's bigger authors just to kind of capitalize on that. Otherwise, they're free. And yes, we, we're just hoping that the sales are good, that people come and that they purchase other things. And you know, sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not so good. Uh, you have to, <laughs> but right. that's why everybody wants to have big authors or, you know, debut authors, local debut authors are always a great event because it's a first novel, they're local, a family shows up, all the friends going to come and everybody kind of buys a book just out of, it's your friend who bought, you know, who published a book. So. Yeah. They under, there's an understanding that places like yours need to exist and the way to support them is to, you know, purchase what they sell. I saw video footage of in of an interview you did with Marcus Samuelson, the the chef. And first of all, do you guys broadcast your events? Is that something that you do or are you looking into doing more of that? Yeah, you know, we just, we're doing a little bit more. We used to be very active in that, especially the bigger events and it's then sometimes falls to the cracks. And now we're actually doing a lot of Facebook Live and just post it. And that's kind of nice and people look at it. So I think that's good. Yeah, so we, we do that more regularly now. But you were saying, like, oh, you see the Marcus Samuelson, yeah. Yeah, it looked like there was this activity, like the, the audience responds. And I also love your seating, by the way. Your seating, was that unique to the space or did you guys come up with that, the sort of amphitheater style seating? Right. So also you need to know, I tell you about the seating, but you also need to know we moved to a new space. Right. So I we're was... now in a different space. Okay, yeah. But, so yeah, so the seating, and that's why the name. So that has an interesting background story too, because when we were about to rent a space, or we just had signed the lease, we uh, went to some photo festivals because our publishing company just does primarily photo books. Right. So we went to a photo festival down in south of France where they have every summer... Uh, there's two towns, one is called Au and the other is Perpignan, where they do kind of month-long photography meetings. And in these towns, there's these arenas, uh, these MC theater kind of, you know, Roman arenas. And they all have these kind of steps and these sand-colored, you know, totally worn-out seats. And that's where most of the evening programming took place at, at Patty Smith, for example, with like sitting in front of photography walls, you know. And we were we really loved it. And then when we came back to the book here to Dumbo and we looked at the space and we talked to the architect, you know, Master said like I, I would love to bring these steps somehow in here to combine the publishing so the professional part with the public space and make that kind of joining so so it's more fluid and it's not such distance between, you know, what we're doing in the office and what we're doing in a bookstore. And then as we, so we build these steps and that's where the name comes from, Power Arena. And the steps were very organically too. They were very kind of fluid and they weren't very, you know, the way the architect did them was really great. And then they ended up being perfect. Yeah, it's also visually stunning. Yeah, it was great, and it's uh, it has a good had a good architecture element. Yeah. Do you have that in the new space? 
Now, if they were really expensive, we wanted to do them, and it, it, it just, just too much open money. Yeah, it's just too expensive to right. do it again. Um, so the new space also has two levels. It's very much like the other space, you know, still in kind of industrial, fairly high, maybe 16, 17 feet high. You know, these big concrete pillars in it, the concrete floor. You know, it's, it has all the kind of, elements, warehouse type of elements on the other space. It's just smaller. Right. We're right at the foot of the Manhattan Bridge, which is also kind of cool. So you have this backdrop, visually backdrop of the archway. But it's it's been challenging, you know. You can't do these massive 400 people events. Yeah. It's just a little bit, uh, the publishing company is not in the same space just because we couldn't, you know, it's just too small to, to fit them in. So it's just different. Um, but, you know, people seem to be liking it and, and it's working out fine, you know, so. Talk a little bit about the store. What's the inventory mix? I know you, so you guys are, are publishers as well. What's the ratio of, uh, of powerhouse titles versus other titles? How, how do you guys approach curating your, your inventory? So for powerhouse, obviously we, we try to feature all the new publications and our good best-selling titles and we mix in a little bit. I would say it's getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> I would say maybe it's 10%. You know, it's really just 10%. Um, then between kids and adults, we're splitting it up pretty much maybe 35, 35%. And the rest, 30%, I'm sure, if you, you know, not necessarily space-wise, but item-wise is, is non-book items. You know, it's gifty stuff for tourists, it's gifts right. for kids, it's a lot of stationery. Um, non-book sales. No, non-book stuff, right. We're not selling yoga mats, <laughs> but uh, which some stores do, right? But we send uh, quite a lot of stuff that is non-book and making a lot of money with it. So that's, if you say, like, how do you subsidize your store and how you stay in business? Yeah, books, you know, sometimes people, yeah, obviously use Amazon and they can buy it fast there and cheaper there. But I would say all the things that these impulse buying, right, this kind of, like, more gift gift uh, items, that's definitely supporting us. And that's something that people wouldn't buy online. They don't know it exists. They don't look for it online. That's definitely something that you buy in, in stores, in, in physical stores. And that can be, it's probably 30% of our income or 25% maybe, because the items are sometimes a little on the cheaper side, but it's a big, it's a, it's a good chunk. So that's definitely something that helps you subsidize, you know? Yeah, for sure. On the publishing side, how many titles do you release per year on average? See, uh, we have a kids line. I would say that's maybe eight to ten titles, eight maybe eight a year, and then the other maybe I want to say an average around twenty, maybe twenty, maybe up to twenty-five in that range. Amazing. So you five, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, Powerhouse's brand extensions. You have a bunch of them. You've got Powerhouse Books. You've got Powerhouse Arena. You guys, I don't know if you formed or were a part of a photo festival. And you have, you have a, I, I, I don't know if it's a kid's store, but you have what's called Powerhouse on 8th. Yep. And then you have the kid's book line. A kid's imprint. Correct. Talk about the idea, like w- what you guys are thinking about in terms of these brand extensions and if you have any other ones in the works. Yeah, so my husband is all about um, world domination. <laughs> you know what I mean? The title of your company uh, would, would never, ever, I would never, ever think that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, he's, he's the same. So his name is Power. He's right. Daniel Power. Right. So 
the name Powerhouse really comes because it's all personal name is Power. And they always called, I think, their family home, the Powerhouse, you know, the House of Power, Powerhouse. Ah. And then when he decided to lose, and then Powerhouse has what it means, the Power, the Powerhouse. Right. But I think he always thought about it. That's what he told me. He said he always thought about it. It's a house, a home for artists. I mean, that's what he envisioned too. On the other side, you're right, it's a, power, it's a powerful house, but it's also a house, a home, a place for artists to publish, to read, to experience. I think that's what, you know, that's the other side of the powerhouse. And I think that the stores for us were very much about experiencing. It's experiencing art, it's experiencing a moment, a meeting, an author, having discussions. I think you create an atmosphere and something that is inspiring or, or, or uh, where people feel really good about themselves or feel great. And then they also want to purchase something as a kind of, I want to take something home from that experience. Um, I think that was one thing. And in terms of like the branding, I mean, you know, as it was, so there was Powerhouse, uh, then there was uh, the publishing company. And then, as I said, my husband really liked the public component of it. So yeah. that's when we merged into having a bookstore. That was the Powerhouse Arena. Then pretty much because we were in Dumbo and we did some photo-related activities, he envisioned there's no photo festival in New York. And there were a lot of empty spaces at that time in Dumbo. And he started the New York Photo Festival. It's a really, really big uh, and complicated and very time-consuming festival to produce. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of money of funding. Everything was kind of self-funded and maybe just a little sponsorship to get some training and printing done. And everything was really based on volunteering. And we were lucky we had a lot of access to open spaces. I think we did four or five years of it. And then Dumbo slowly, just all these spaces got rented and there wasn't much anymore to do it. And it just became much more complicated to do it. So we technically, the New York Photo Festival has kind of like dropped off and it's not active anymore. Two of our staffers who actually helped us running it, they started their own, which is called United Photos, and they started their own kind of spin-off of the New York Photo Festival and do something in Dumbo that's photo festival kind of related, but it's separate from us. And then I think the kids book came first, like the kids book was just something, you know, because we, you know, we knew kids books are doing really well. Uh, We had some access to certain artists and we just tried to, let's try, we have a publishing company already. Yeah. Let's just try to add in uh, some kids books. Not that easy because it's a really competitive market and, and it's, it's really held by the five big publishers and it's the marketing is very special. It's very different from photography book publishing. How is it difficult? I want to jump on that. Is it is it because the, the is it because the authors are signed up already with the with the big publishers or what? First makes it- of all, exactly. Because I think the kids' book market it can be really lucrative and occasionally you have these massive hits. You probably know there's certain books who just stand out and they sell and sell like crazy. Yeah. And because they have really good marketing and they can really also supply you know like if something goes really well they can really throw out some print runs and and supply and let the machine and make that machine work right when it's so small it's hard to do that and it's hard to get the book out in the first place in that massive capacity that it actually can become something it's just really not that easy i mean we have some books are doing well they're in the sixth print run but you know and they're doing well and they're getting sold and carried and people like them and, and they got good reviews but it, it will never be as big as that yeah and then we can't really bid on 
once an author or illustrator is known, you can never bid on it. It's just these amounts are just too high. You know? They're in, they're in a different machine. That's just sort of like a different machine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the second bookstore came about because it's very close by where we personally where we live, and we knew a lot of people in that neighborhood because our son went to school. The, the second bookstore, Powerhouse and Eight. It's a regular bookstore. It's not just kids. It's the same mix, adults and kids and, and some gifts, just smaller. And it's literally a block away from my son's elementary school. And we just thought like, oh, this is just an easy thing. <laughs> just yeah. to kind of open up a second store. There wasn't a bookstore really around. It was, you know, we just have thought it's really easy going. Very different. One bookstore, so within Brooklyn, uh, we are just six separate stops away, a 20-minute car ride away. Two completely different stores, two completely different sets of customers, two completely different ways of people, what they buy and what they, not what they want, but how they purchase things. Totally different. You wouldn't think that, right? You're in Brooklyn, you said like, okay, this is Brooklyn and this is how it works. But they're not at all the same. It's very strange. <laughs> no, it's, it's very true. Even within Los Angeles, where I live, there's different pockets, different neighborhoods, completely different inventories, completely different mindsets, completely different... Behavior, customer behavior. Yeah, it's really strange. And I haven't... uh, I mean, by now I figure out what's going on, but it's like when you start off, you don't really think about it, and that's what's happening. And, you know, there's pretty much... I mean, Green Lights and Word and Community Books, so they all have... and, And McNally, they all have now second or third bookstores or second two, two bookstores. Yeah. And I, I'm sure they're going through the same experience. It's like it's one is not the same like the other, you know. And your main bookstore is probably still the one that's the, the powerful source. Of the, the mothership. Totally. Yeah. You actually just elegantly led into my next question, which is kind of a more macro question. There are bookstores all across the country, and you're, you're included, that have opened multiple locations or kind of becoming these mini chains. McNally, you mentioned in Greenlight in, Green yeah. in Brooklyn. There's a, there's a store in Seattle. There's a store in San Francisco. What is happening? How, why and how are more and more stores opening in spite of all of the doom and gloom that's kind of being floating around in the ether? Yeah, I think, well, first, I think is. If your first store is fairly successful, you think, oh, I can just replicate this elsewhere. That, I think that's the first idea, right? You think, oh, I'm doing really well, and I replicate it, which, as, as we know, all know, it's not exactly the same. And to be honest, okay, so the store is smaller in Park Slope, right? It's, a, it's much smaller, so we have less inventory. But we're making a tenth of the income that we're making in Dumbo. You know, it's really, really, it's, it's, the Park Slope store is technically struggling to make its rent and to pay for itself. But here's the other thing. So you have a main store, you have all the structures set up. You have the buyer, you have uh, the bookkeeper, you have the receiving, you know, you have all your main uh, operating staff there. So you have a second store, all you do is you tag on. The buyer now also buys instead of just for one store, buys for the other store. He buys the same titles, maybe just like less quantity, right? Or certain titles he doesn't buy because he knows, you know, I don't have that much uh, space. So I think you're just using your main staff to pay or, or work for the other store. So you don't have as much staff expenses and labor to do it because, you know, you just do the same thing for the other store and just tag it on. So I think that might be the idea where people think, I have already a store, I'm opening another store, and it's like a third of my cost probably, right? Or I don't know how much the cost is, but it's, it's definitely less 
expensive to run and operate it because you are subsidizing it technically by your main store. I think that's what it is. It's easier, you know, like that's why you've changed, right? You keep kind of just replicate what you're doing elsewhere and and keep you streamline your activities and your staff. How big of a, I don't even, I don't want to use the word problem or concern, but just sort of like how big of a factor is rent? Like in, in terms of like landlords, like is finding a landlord that understands the type of business you are a challenge or do landlords get it? Or is it very just sort of cut and dry? This is what the market rate is. I think that, yeah, the latter. I think it's really like, we have a fairly nice landlord in Park Slope. You know, they, they know as well, she happens to be German. He runs a local cinema. So they're very kind of, they know, they know we're struggling. So they are a little bit more like, if you want to really negotiate maybe the lease and the rent, I'm thinking they're very kind of open for that. In Dumbo, not so much. In the beginning, right. very friendly. And then they just tripled the rent on us to $60,000 a month. And we're like, oh! Oh my gosh. Then they yeah. gave us this other space, which is, the least attractive space they could find <laughs> that was available. Yeah. You know, we, we make it happen and we make it uh, work for us, but we wish we had a better location. It's not the best location, but the rent is better. It's definitely better. And I don't want, really don't want to complain. The rent is really attractive enough for... To make it work. Considering that the big uh, hub of tourism, right? I mean, between the Brooklyn Bridge and Manhattan Bridge and all these tourists coming, we're, we're sitting pretty nicely. Right? But... Rent is a big factor. Rent is a big factor, definitely. You don't have to have an answer for this, but I I like asking it because it kind of gets you to think a little bit more introspectively, I guess. Um, Is there an innovation or thing nobody is doing in your business right now? That we're doing, that nobody else is doing? That that nobody's doing. Is there an innovation or oh. thing that kind of stymies you? Like, why isn't why isn't any why didn't anybody think of this or why isn't anybody doing this or I wonder oh. why this is not happening? I don't know. Fair enough. I don't think there's any mysteries. I think everybody has tried everything, you know? Yeah, that's the, that's the idea. That's that's the spirit. Yeah, the new stuff obviously is, you know, that happened in the past two, three years is social media outreach, being very active, you know? That's something that just wasn't, you know, five years ago, nobody really cared about it. Now it's important. That does help. I think that's something, you know, you always want to be kind of active and out there. You don't want to be quiet. You know? No, yeah, you got to be top of mind. You got to find ways to be top of mind. But otherwise, I don't think there are too many mysteries in this business or any hidden secrets how you can make extra money or something. I don't really know. I would not know how. No, I pre- and I appreciate you taking the time to ponder the, the, the question. <laughs> um, I am going to jump to, we're, we're going to wrap up soon. I'm going to jump to a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you some questions. They can be yes or no answers, or you can riff on them if you feel like, if you feel like it. What does the word bookstore mean to you in 2018? Oh, community, um, community enjoy and feeling human. Love it. What is your, <laughs> what does your business look like in five years? Wow. I mean, it's not really that obvious five years. So it's a family business. So sometimes I also think a little bit like family. Are we going to be actually maybe around? Maybe the lease up. Maybe we think that's it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm a little bit cautious about saying what it could be. And I think it will be not that much different. We hope to add in a bar and a cafe. So that will be our maybe next step to expand into something a little bit more entertaining. Um, We're waiting for liquor license. So I would say if something changes, it will be 
adding an element of more entertainment, having a, a, a liquor license. We already built the bar, so we already have halfway there, but we have some issues with the building department. Um, what are you reading at the moment? Anything good? Yes, I'm reading Dana Horne's book. It's called Eternal Life, published by Norton. And are there any writers or artists whose work you publish out there that you'd like to mention that you think should be getting more attention? Oh, from the publishing program. Um, or writers, or writers that you just kind of like that you kind of wonder why they aren't bigger than they are, you know? Yeah, yeah. I definitely want to maybe rather shout out somebody from Powerhouse, of course, to see. Um, I guess I did, I must say, something that just struck me just, just recently is a book called Undocumented that we published. It's by Getty Photographer and just showcases both sides of the whole South South American immigration trying to get into over the border, illegally over the border, and then also border control. It shows this whole conflict that's going on right now around the Mexican border. That's an amazing book, and I think that should get a lot of attention. And, you know, it's very political right now. It's very much in the air. It's a really great a big photography book. It's really strong photography. Great. And it's, t- it's t- timely, too. Timely, yeah. If you uh, weren't a bookseller, what would you be doing? Well, I would probably be somewhere in the art world. But if I could have a second life, I would be in the food world. <laughs> I love food. I wrote a book uh, a few years ago, a publisher powerhouse called Made in Brooklyn. And it's all about the Brooklyn food makers. Everybody who's making pickles and chocolate. And, and I'm really into food, so... Very cool. Well, you're going to like, hopefully you like my last question then. A couple more. Complete the sentence for me. Brooklyn is... A joy. A joy to live here. What book have you recommended the most over the years? And Sons, but it's the Anderson sign. Okay. Um, and I might have to email you the name of the author. Please do. And I'm really bad about it, but I don't know the author. Finally... Last but not least, what's in your ideal sandwich? Um, cheese. I do like butter because I'm from Germany. A mm-hmm. really good bread. Right? It has to be dark bread. So it's something grainy and dark and fresh. And pickles. And I guess a really good uh, fumed ham. More like a European-style fumed ham. That's in my sandwich. Pretty straightforward German butter sandwich. <laughs> Well said. Suzanne, thank you so much for participating in the series. Yeah. You were a delight to talk to. Thank you. Um, and Powerhouse, I wish you guys a lot of well and keep going strong. You've been listening to Book Stories. Book Stories is produced by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles. Special thanks to Savannah Tate for production assistance. Thrilled to have Savannah on board. Finally, if you like what we're up to, you can help us a lot by writing a review on Apple Podcasts and telling all your bibliophile friends out there what we're up to. Thanks.